CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet, with more than 3 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we discuss how you're wrong about what you think will make you happy. Research shows that the vast majority of people are terrible at predicting what will actually make them happy, and even when you think you know what makes you happy, you're often wrong. We break apart the core delusions that stop you from being happy, and we dig into a scientific analysis of the state of enlightenment to uncover that it's not just something for Buddhist monks, but a measurable brain state that can be achieved by anyone, anywhere. With our guests, Dr. Ash Eldefrawi and Dr. Alex Lickerman. I'm going to tell you why you've been missing out on some incredibly cool stuff if you haven't signed up for our email list yet. All you have to do to sign up is to go to successpodcast.com and sign up right on the homepage. On top of tons of subscriber-only content, exclusive access, and live Q&As with previous guests, monthly giveaways, and much more, I also created an epic free video course just for you. It's called How to Create Time for What Matters Most Even When You're Really Busy. Email subscribers have been raving about this guide. You can get all of that and much more by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage or by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222 on your phone. If you like what I do on Science of Success, my email list is the number one way to engage with me and go deeper on what I discuss on the show, including free guides, actionable takeaways, exclusive content, and much, much more. Sign up for my email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. Or if you're on the go, if you're on your phone right now, it's even easier. Just text the word SMARTER 
That's S-M-A-R-T-E-R to the number 44222. I can't wait to show you all the exciting things you'll get when you sign up and join the email list. In our previous episode, we discussed the important difference between competence and confidence and looked at the dangers of focusing too much on building up your self-esteem. We explored the gift of failure and why sometimes it's better to let children fail than to try to make them feel better. We learned why frustration is a vital and important piece of the learning process, why we must consider the inevitability of failure, and we uncovered one of the most powerful teaching tools that you can use to learn, grow, and improve with our previous guest, Jessica Leahy. If you want to know the truth about the relationship between failure and self-esteem, listen to that episode. Now, for our interview with Ash and Alex. Today, we have two exciting guests on the show. Dr. Ash L. Defwari is a thought leader in clinical, social, and consumer psychology. He's been featured in The Economist, Forbes, Bloomberg, The Wall Street Journal, and much more. And Dr. Alex Lickerman. Alex is the author of The Undefeated Mind and a Physician. He's the former assistant professor of medicine, director of primary care, and assistant vice president for student health and counseling services at the University of Chicago. His work's been featured in The New York Times, USA Today, Time Magazine, and much more. Together, they've written the best-selling book, The Ten Worlds, The New Psychology of Happiness. Alex, Ash, welcome to the Science of Success. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Well, I'm really excited to have you both on here. I think the topics and themes that you cover within Ten Worlds are fascinating, and I really want to explore this with the audience. But to start out, one of the core premises that you begin the book with is this notion that our current beliefs about how we can be happy are wrong. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So the premise of the book is that people all across the world have different beliefs about what they need to be happy. And a common one would be they need to have the right job, the right money, the right amount of money, the right spouse, you know, certain things external to their lives they have to have correct. And actually, if you would imagine every single thing that everyone on the planet believes they need to be happy and you added them all up together and then sort of try to derive what the core beliefs that that all those multiple beliefs sort of slot down into, they would really kind of slot down into 10 core beliefs. And our thesis is that nine of those beliefs are actually delusional, meaning we think they will bring us long-lasting happiness or happiness that endures when in fact they will not. And even more basic than that, it is in fact the beliefs we have about what we need to be happy themselves that determine how happy we are able to be. It's not what we have, it's what we believe we need to have to be happy. That's a really powerful word when you call it a delusion. Tell me a little bit more about why, and, and we'll get into the various core delusions and, and talk about them, but tell me about why you use such powerful language when you describe what often people think they need to achieve happiness. The reason we use the word delusion is because we believe that people are, really, are looking for a happiness that actually lasts or endures. They're not looking for happiness that's temporary and then can be taken away or snatched away based on something that happens in their lives or circumstances changing. Not to say that people achieve temporary happiness all the time, they do. But the reason we call these delusions is because we believe what those things are, people believe they could be happy, are, are only things that are gonna get them temporary happiness. And people cling to those beliefs very strongly and their lives are governed by them. So because of that, we wanted to be very clear that those are delusions because if you're searching for happiness that won't that will last and not be destroyed by what happens to you, then ultimately it's a, it's an incorrect belief, and that's what a delusion is. 
want to add to that is important because this gets a little nuanced that the things that people believe, these nine delusions or core delusions as we, we call them, they will make people happy temporarily. And so that's part of the reason why they're so difficult to disbelieve. They're so difficult to sort of turn away from when we're searching to become permanently happy. It, the delusional part of this is that the happiness they bring by definition is temporary and we, we posit that there is a different type of happiness that people can attain if they want to work towards it that is more long-lasting, deeper, and more and permanent. I'd love to hear a specific example around one of these delusions just to give this a little more context for the audience. But I also think you made a really important point that in, in all of these cases, if you build your happiness on any sort of external anything, right, whether it's another person, whether it's an achievement, whether it's your legacy, all of these different things... At the end of the day, that's a fragile or impermanent place to put it. And and correct me if I'm misunderstanding this, but what I hear you saying is basically that by doing that, you're putting yourself in a situation where you can never attain permanent, lasting happiness. Let's talk about the world of hunger, where the core delusion there, the belief there that people hold is that happiness comes from getting the things you want. Sounds absolutely logical, right? People think if I can get the right job or make the amount of money or get the right wife or get the promotion or get my kids in the right school, get the house, wh- whatever that might be, uh, people attach themselves thinking, if I can just get those things, I'll make me happy. And when you do achieve them, they do provide temporary happiness. But think about how long that lasts or how quickly that fades. And even, and even more, think about what happens when you lose those things, your happiness plummets with them. And so we talk a lot about the 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 metaphor or analog of like, it's like, it's like a, a stick of gum. You chew it, it tastes great and sweet at first, but ultimately it always fades. But the hit of that happiness is very powerful and very real, which is why we continuously pursue it again and again and again. And the world of hunger is really this, a world of really aching and longing to, to, to get that next thing and to drive yourself to get that next thing all the time. So while it's very powerful and very rewarding when it happens, it is ultimately a delusion if you believe those things are going to achieve a happiness that lasts a lifetime, because we know they don't. And in fact, I want to add to that, because the science shows it really is a neurologic phenomenon that we habituate to all of our attachments, right? At first, when we get them, we're incredibly focused on them. We're often obsessed with them. And then they gradually just become things we have, and our attention gradually turns from them towards other things. And especially if we are really engaged with this belief that to be happy, we have to get what we want. Once the thing we get stops making us happy and just becomes something we have, something we're used to and, in fact, take for granted, we light on other things, thinking, okay, maybe we made a mistake there because I'm not as happy as I used to be when I got this job. So maybe the problem was the job was the wrong thing to make me happy. I have to find the right spouse, or maybe I have to buy the right house or, or whatever. And, and people who are uh, caught with this particular delusion think that by getting something they want, it's going to fundamentally change them into a happier person because it makes it, as Ashley, it gives them that hit at first. But because of our psychology and ultimately our neurology, the research is really clear that you know, we get on this hedonic treadmill and the longer we run on it, the longer we, we accumulate these things, ultimately we return to our baseline level of happiness. And our, we wind up right back where we started thinking, well, the problem is we just wanted the wrong thing. We have to find the right thing to want and we go after that next thing. And you made a great point, and we'll get into this a little bit more, but the reality is a lot of the things you're talking about, and I think listeners will, will certainly have this experience as we unpack more of these ideas, but can seem a little bit sort of mystical especially once we get into enlightenment, which we're going to talk about in a little while. But 
the reality is there's a ton of science that backs up this idea that we're not really very good at all at figuring out what actually makes us happy. Yeah, you know, Alex can get into a little bit more around the roots of the 10 worlds and the, the paradigm, which is based in Eastern philosophy and Buddhism particularly. But the, in fact, the idea and the concept of the 10 worlds was born of me, the intersection between, you know, science and psychology and actually empirical cases and then, and then even into then mysticism or at least into philosophy. And so I think that there, there's components of that in all of this, but everything that we talk about in the book ultimately is rooted in in what we can be sound science around from a psychology or neurological uh, perspective. So you're right in that. I guess I would say, you know, Buddhist philosophers have been observing the mind for 2,500 years and, and contemplating and writing about it. And in a way, consider them some of the earliest psychologists because they would make empiric observations about the different life states or different conditions in which people's thinking would appear and and over time sort of categorize them. And so the reason we began with that organization was because it really did reflect the experience that, that Ash and I both had in our respective fields, his in psychology, mine in internal medicine, of the way people were predisposed or disposed, I, I should say, their, their mindsets. We got very interested to know is the 2500 years of Buddhist philo philosophical thinking reflected in modern day scientific studies? And it, it really did. It really does. And that, you know, our interest is not in perpetuating mysticism, but in finding a better understanding of sort of the way human beings think and then most importantly, how they become happy based on the science. And I, I would add that. One of the things that Ash and I have found in the last 20 years as we've been thinking about this and working on this and, and observing the, the literature on the science of happiness, in the, uh, which was sparked in the 1990s by the positive psychology movement by Martin Seligman, is that the, the research that's been done up till now is very useful, and very valid, but we think it's focusing on too superficial a level, that it's not really getting down and addressing sort of what are the core beliefs that people have that motivate both their thinking and their feeling and their behavior surrounding happiness that there's some science to describe. And so that's really why we thought this is an important time to write this book and, and bring forth some of these ideas. And I guess the last thing I want to say about this is, and I want to be very clear about this because Ash and I really are very strict with ourselves in terms of the science here. A, a lot of this book is speculative. It's based on a lot of studies, but the paradigm we put forth that we sort of are, are proposing is really a model that we put together from our own observations and our practices as well as what the science is saying. And so I'm hoping that there will be people who will read this and say, there's more studying to do here. Let's try to validate this model and sort of uh, take a whack at it and see if it holds up. I really respect that that framework and, and that admission that it at some level, you've done a ton of homework. You've, you've looked at all the research, but at the end of the day, you have to take all that research in and form a viewpoint or a framework or perspective. And there's, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but there's a really insightful lesson there for anybody listening, which is at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's hard to ever really truly be completely certain about anything. Even science is disproven sometimes. But the flip side of that is the scientific framework is generally a very useful, empirically driven, you know, the scientific process has critical feedback and peer reviews and all these different things that help it move in the direction of truth, much more so than a lot of other frameworks or ideas. And so I, I like that you said, you know, it's rooted in science, you've done all the homework, but at the same time, you've internalized all that and said, here's what we think it's saying. That's exactly right. Exactly right. And as you say, you point out very, very aptly, science moves very slowly because it has to be tested empirically. And that's expensive and time consuming. But that's how you really get it, right? There are a lot of people out there who want to believe in the notion of enlightenment, 
who turn towards, you know, the more mystical aspect of practice. And that may be, you know, for many people, a path they want to take. But our interest is in uncovering what's the real science behind this, right? If enlightenment and happiness are phenomenon, a phenomena of the mind, there must be a science and principles that sort of describe and explain how we get there. And that's really what we're interested in getting at, at the truth about that. So you touched on something really important, which is how beliefs underpin and shape all of this. But before we talk about that, I want to come back to this one interesting tidbit that that touches on what we were talking about a second ago, which you shared in the book, which is this idea that there's a tremendous amount of research about happiness and it's, it's actually ex- exploding. And yet unhappiness is increasing at the same time. Yeah, ironic, right? Actually, there's some recent studies that show that more than ever, the world is more depressed than ever before and unhappier than they've ever been. So that is kind of a paradox there that you that you point out. We're actually not surprised if your if our thesis is is true, and that part of the reason that's happening is people are actually going about trying to find happiness in the wrong way. And in fact, as as you know, this comes into people's consciousness more, and they actually search for it more than you can imagine. If they're chasing that and not able to somehow to grasp it, that that could actually lead people to become even more frustrated and unhappy, which might explain you know, what's going on. There's obviously a lot of factors that probably influence why the world is where it is. Some of them exogenous, more internal in terms of our psychology, but we do believe that more than ever, that we need to challenge the current paradigms that are being that are out there how to address this. And like Alex said, spark a conversation that's rooted in some real empirical observation in science to see whether or not we're thinking about this in the right way. So we really, that's, that was really the purpose of, one of the purposes of writing this book. So let's dig into this power of beliefs and how beliefs underpin and shape our experiences and our, as you call them, our worlds. So imagine, let's take an example. One of the the uh, core delusions uh, we talk about is an example to try to explain that. So if you think about the world of animality, the core delusion that underlies that world, that creates that world, and we're arguing that it is it is your beliefs about what you need to be happy that create your inner life state, which reflects your thinking, the types of thoughts you have, the things you feel, and the actions you'll take, uh, as well as even your energy level. So the core delusion of the world of animality is that pleasure is equal to happiness. Pleasure and happiness are one and the same. And by pleasure, we mean basic pleasure, which typically revolves around physical pleasure. And so if you if you think about for a minute, so let's say you believe that. You really believe the key being happy is to feel as much physical pleasure as you possibly can. So how will you behave? What will you do? And what experiences will you have as a result of that? So people, for example, who become addicted to drugs, alcohol, sex, eating, physical comfort, all those things, those will be the things that you will pursue. And in pursuing those things, you will achieve pleasure. And pleasure is clearly, as we talk about later in the book, a part of happiness. But the pursuit of pleasure, people who live their lives in that way, typically develop lives that are far more full of suffering than they are of joy and happiness. That actually the overindulgence of pleasure is not the way to have a happy and successful life. And in fact, we can characterize the types of things that people who believe that will say and do and the types of lives they will create for themselves. And they are surprisingly consistent and stereotypical. So that, you know, if you know people who are in, in general like addicts, addicts of, to, to some physical pleasure, the way they think and feel and behave and the, the lives they construct for themselves are remarkably similar. And it's the belief itself, the belief that physical pleasure is happiness that actually is, puts the ceiling on how happy they're able to be, right? So you can achieve pleasure. You can say, get drunk or have sex or 
have a delicious meal uh, and overindulge in that. And while you're experiencing those things, you'll feel pleasure. You may even very well feel joy. But overall, the level of happiness you are able to achieve is set at a very low level. And in fact, most people who, who indulge that way suffer far more than they feel joy. And we're arguing that the core reason for this, the core cause at the very center of the lives that these people who are trapped in the world create is this belief that turn happiness are one in the same. Yeah, I can give you another example of a little more subtle world. I can, I can talk about my world, the world I come from, which is the world of tranquility, which, by the way, based on some of the research we've done so far, based on a survey we have, which is, is, the, is the most common world, uh, at least for the people who've taken it, that people seem to come from. The core belief of the world of tranquility is that happiness comes from avoiding pain. And so if you think about the life, if you believe that, again, if you really at the core, that's sort of your, your guiding principle, your guiding belief, then you construct a life that, that's sort of avoiding negative or bad consequences or bad outcomes. You don't take much risk financially or with relationships or with jobs. You construct your life in a way that's somewhat safe uh, in terms of decisions you make. But then it can also be very, very paralyzing in terms of making decisions because you worry too much that making the wrong decision will take you down the wrong path. So you place a lot and way too much emphasis on making the right decisions, which can obviously lead to a lot of anxiety because it's impossible to kind of to put control that. And in fact, we point to research in the book that shows that people are actually really bad at predicting which decisions will ultimately make them happy or not. I think Alex can correct me if I'm wrong, but we're actually wrong most of the time in thinking we know what outcomes will make us happy. But when you construct a life that, that's that in which you believe that, you can imagine that every decision is kind of approached with a lot of anxiety and a lot of avoidance. And so it's kind of living a very safe existence, like playing, like playing defense all the time, which can obviously lead to a lot of consequences around what you don't experience in life as much as it is protecting you from negative outcomes, which looks, that's a life that looks very different, for example, than the life from the world of animality, which is almost the opposite. It's fascinating. And it's interesting, actually, that you say that that the world of tranquility is the most common because I would say that's a very frequent and resonant theme of questions that I get emailed from listeners all the time, which is essentially some variant of the same question of, I have a big decision in my life and I feel paralyzed. I feel like I can't make it. I don't know if I'm going to make the right decision. And, you know, I'm stuck and they get caught in this sort of analysis paralysis. It's really fascinating that, that that's one of the most resonant themes that, that you found as well. Well, I don't think it's not that surprising if you think about, you know, how our brains evolved. Fundamentally, they are designed to keep us alive. And so fear is a dominant force in everyone's life to some degree. And when it becomes such a predominant force, when we're, we're trying to avoid it so much that we believe to be happy, we must be free of it and free of pain because we've been programmed to avoid those things. And that becomes our central reason, as Ash said, our guidepost. That sort of takes over our behavior, it takes over our thinking, and and absolutely, again, sets the ceiling on the limit of how happy we can be. Because imagine if, in fact, you didn't feel, you didn't believe that a happy life is a life that requires the absence of pain, and you were accepting of pain. All the the ways you'd think about happiness and what and and, and decision making and even anxiety and and physical and emotional pain would be completely different. And the ability that you would have to to experience happiness. Uh, the things that you think would make you happy would be very different. In fact, we argue that you would potentially be much happier. People can say, I'm at peace, everything's okay, and that is their goal. And so certainly they're not suffering, but they're also not so happy either. And many people have sort of come to believe that is the best that they can hope for. Whether they 
consciously admit it to themselves, to recognize it or not, that's the, the state that they're aiming for. Again, because of their fundamental core delusional belief that happiness is a life free from pain. And that comes back to something Ash said earlier that I thought was really interesting, which is that we're really bad at predicting what actually makes us happy. You know, that's, I don't know if you're familiar or your listeners are familiar with Daniel Gilbert's work in predicting our, our effective outcomes, meaning when we imagine something happening in the future, whether good or bad, our imaginations are actually pretty poor at forecasting how we will react to them because we only imagine in a very rough way. And so I think like with any other characteristic that you could spread out among people and see who's good at, there's probably a bell-shaped curve. There are probably some people who are incredibly good, effective forecasters, meaning they can predict how happy or unhappy they will be when certain things happen to them. But the vast majority of, uh, of people, uh, his research was are actually pretty bad at it. And so, you know, that kind of, as Ash pointed out, directly uh, belies the core delusion of the world of hunger, meaning when we think we know what will make us happy uh, long term, we're often wrong. And so uh, it's just sort of the way our, our minds are built. So to give the audience a little bit more context for all of this, let's zoom out and, and would you briefly, I don't want to go super deep into each of these, but would you briefly summarize all nine of the core delusions? So it starts with the world of hell, where, as most people modern day probably think about that as depression, which is a very close uh, analog to it. And that's the world of suffering. And the core delusion of that world is that basically that you are powerless to end your suffering or end your pain. And so the world of hell is really the state of perpetual suffering that you think you can't escape it, which is then why, not surprisingly, we call, we call it hell. And what, what makes it particularly hellish maybe even worse sometimes than some kinds of depression is that you are kind of, you are just, there's this belief, this core belief that you just, you can't end it. You don't know how to end it. And that in itself continues to plunge, uh, plunge you further and further into the world. Then we talked about already uh, the world of hunger, which Alex gave uh, the example of, which is where happiness comes from getting what you want. We also talked about the world of animality, which is the belief that happiness and pleasure are the same thing. And Alex, I think, went into good detail in terms of what that looks like, from whether it's pursuing physical pleasures, like food and sex, drugs and rock and roll. And then you get into the world of tranquility, the world of anger. And this world is a world where you believe that happiness comes from basically feeling that you're superior or better than others, than everyone else. So this world is characterized a lot a lot by really core rooted in insecurities and the need, you know, this need to prove yourself better than others around you or be seen in that or be seen in that way. And as you can imagine, that's that's a world that's full of can look like arrogance or control, but at the end of the day is rooted in insecurity. And then you get into the world of tranquility, which is the world I described, which is uh, the belief that to be happy, you have to avoid pain. And we talked a little bit what what that looks like. So then I can take on from there. So the world of rapture is typically what people, when they think about happiness, think about. And that is the joy that comes from having an attachment. And that attachment could be anything from an external attachment, like a material possession, to an external attachment, like a relationship, to an internal attachment, like one's sense of health and vitality, or even ideas that you're particularly taken with and just thinking about them and contemplating those attachments brings us joy. In, in the book, we talk a lot about the science around this. There's been an explosion in the study of uh, the neurology around this and, and very interesting for those who are, are uh, more science oriented. The problem with the world of rapture, as we've been talking about, is that any attachment, 
any attachment whatsoever, whether external or internal, by definition, its ability to, provi- to provide you joy is temporary, number one. Number two, while some attachments, especially internal ones, are harder to lose than others, our external attachments, not only are they often lost, in fact, they're always lost, if you think about it, whether because they go away or because ultimately one day you go away. They're all temporary. And so, you know, every attachment we gain that brings us joy contains within it the seed of our future suffering. So while many people aim at the world of rapture as their ultimate goal in life, and we're arguing there are forms of happiness that are superior and that are better targets, not by the way that you should avoid rapture. We're, you know, this is very important, right? We're not arguing that that happiness that's temporary is in some way a false sense of happiness or a happiness not worth pursuing. It is. But it's not, it's not the happiest we think people can be. And we think we, we're hoping to inspire people to aim for something more. So that something more would, it would be, it would lie in what we call the higher worlds, which are the, the top four worlds. And by the way, the order of these worlds is not an accident. It is the order in which the ceiling on one's happiness, the degree of joy one feels, the higher the world you go, we will argue the, the greater your core affect, the happier you are. So after rapture is uh, learning, and learning and the, its next world realization are, are uh, sister worlds. They're very closely linked. Learning is the world of value creation and learning itself. And the, the core belief or core delusion that, that people Uh, are driven into this world is that in order to have a happy life, your life has to be meaningful. You have to be creating things of value. This happens to be the world that I tend to come from. I'm very familiar with it. The sister world realization is very similar, except that the value that you create in this world uh, is thought to be uh, or needs to be centering around improving yourself. So the world of self-development and people in this world believe that to become happy, they must in some way be continuously developing themselves. And then the world above that is the world of compassion. And this is the world in which we believe that in order to be happy, we have to be helping other people to become happy too. This is the world of value creation for others. So to take it all together, uh, these higher worlds of learning, realization, and compassion, they're really the attachment that drives our our desire to, to, to uh, or the, that we are after in these worlds, I should say. It is an attachment, but is the attachment of a very particular attachment. It's attachment of meaning. So that, that the world of learning, the type of meaning we're creating is the meaning that when we are expressing our values in some way and creating things that represent um, what we feel is important. Uh, the world of realization, the value of self-improvement, and then uh, what we would argue is among the highest of, of a meaningful value is the value you create for other people. And so altogether, what we've just described are the nine worlds, as we think about them, that are governed by what we call core delusions. And again, I want to stress that these delusions are delusional only because they don't bring us an, a happiness that is indestructible and enduring, which is what we will argue is what we're really all after in our in our hearts. They bring us happiness that's temporary. The tenth world, the world of enlightenment. There's a lot of mystical connotations to that word, and we spend the the chapter uh, in the book, which is the longest chapter, trying to break that down and approach it from a very scientific point of view. And so uh, we can talk about this, but uh, there's actually a lot of fascinating science around this. But in in general, the core truth of the world of enlightenment is that the world around us is sublime. And what we mean by sublime is that there is an elegant, beautiful, and a good order to the entire universe. And that it is in perceiving our surroundings and ourselves in that way, 
we attain a life state and a, and a sense of joy that cannot be destroyed by anything because it is not based on any attachment whatsoever. It's not based on having anything. It's based on perceiving the world in a certain way. And so we can get into that further, but that is what we consider to be, and we've labeled a core truth, that if you can find a way to manifest that, and that's another discussion we have about how the different ways we can believe things and why that's so important. But if we can stir up within ourselves, we can enter that world of enlightenment and experience what has been described as the joy of joys. I definitely want to dig into the science of that and how we can manifest enlightenment. But before we do, I want to come back and, and talk a little bit more about these, the, the nine core delusions, only from the perspective of, you know, when I look across these, I see, I see myself, I see my behavior in a number of different worlds. Is this something that there's only one place where you spend your time or can you be in multiple different levels or how, how does that work? I'll start that and Alex can expand on it. No. So absolutely. We actually can move from world to world, literally in, in minute to minute. You can leave one and enter the other, you know, as, as, one, as one belief might fleet out of your mind, another one come into it. It happens to you probably literally when you're look staring at a dessert or eat a part of a chocolate cake, you're in the world of, you know, animality versus if you're focused on getting something later, if your mind goes to some other place and you're focused on something else that you want to achieve or some promotion you're trying to get, you can literally move in and out of different worlds and even stay there for, you know, extended periods of time. What we argue is that though everybody has their basic life tendency, which is the world in which they sort of come from, think about it, or, the, or they, where they come back to, which is the really governing principle around that, that mostly bucks the life around them and the majority of the time. But everybody experiences all the different worlds. And, and, and I would argue that, you know, in trying to understand that and trying to understand what grips you from one to the other, that you can sort of you can gain control over that. But, but absolutely, we all can experience all the different worlds. And, and the reason for that is because we all at one time or another have the different core delusions that create these worlds stirred up in us. It's not that we disbelieve these to become enlightened is to suddenly realize, oh, I, I don't need to be happy. I don't need to get what I want to be happy or experience physical pleasure to be happy. Those, the ability of those beliefs to seduce us and to control us and to sort of determine our approach to life never goes away. The question is, when we encounter environmental experiences, when things happen to us, which of these beliefs is stirred up most strongly? And that seems to be just an individual thing determined by perhaps the way we were born, perhaps early life experiences we've had or reflections we've gone through as we thought about what kind of lives we want to actually create for ourselves. All those things go into determining when things happen to us, which beliefs get stirred up in response. And it is those beliefs that determine which world we are thrust into at any one moment. And so it turns out from our observations that people just tend to have one particular core delusion that is stirred up far more often and more powerfully than the rest that determines the world they spend the most time in and the world they want to be in the most. Yeah, Matt, I mean, it's, it's a great question, Matt, because this actually, this what you just touched on is actually what, what got me the most interested potentially in pursuing this. And as a psychologist, I was always struck by how the exact, this seems very basic to say, but how the exact same event can impact different people in profoundly different ways, right? Somebody could lose, could lose a, you know, get broken up with. And for some people will plunge them into a world of hell or some that they don't recover from while other people, it can empower them for the level of self-discovery that propels them into, you know, into the world of realization and they start really, and they turn it into something very powerful themselves. You know why? Because it stirred up something different or a different belief, which was prominent for that person. So again, it's not so much the external event 
It's the belief that stirs up that determines our overall condition of our life or the way we experience the world and our life state, which is which is really the root, you know, the core thesis of, of the book. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting point that the same stimulus can have a radically different impact on two different people. Which is, I mean, doesn't it? Don't we see that happen all the time? I mean, some people that, that they lose a job and they're thinking, this is great. I'll, I, I'm, what an opportunity. Other people lose a job and they are plunged into a, into a, a deep-seated depression. And, and we're arguing that at its core, it is because those, that sim, one event has stirred up different, fundamentally different core beliefs within each of those people that then determine everything. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give. But what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are, too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Hiring the right person takes time, time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire, because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. So I want to come back to the question of enlightenment or even uh, to phrase it a different way, the science of enlightenment. Tell me a little bit more about how you came to this conclusion, what some of the research says, and what your perspective on enlightenment is. 
Yeah, I'll take this one. So the first thing to, to note about this is that what's interesting is that the, the description of what enlightenment is like has been consistent from the beginning of recorded human history. In every society, at every time, there are people who have described experiencing this state. And they use different terminology based on sort of, you know, the culture of the time and what the predominant beliefs uh, have been. And, and because for most of human history, they've been powerfully associated with religious beliefs. A lot of the language that's used is, is religious language. But if you actually look at what the features of this state are, they are remarkably consistent through all of history. We talk about there's sort of seven features in the book that are this, and one of the, the ones we're most interested in is this, this transcendent joy that comes with that life state. And in fact, if you, there, there's been some recent science that the number of people who have experienced that state, even temporarily, is far more than most people would think. Most people listening to this podcast probably know somebody who has had an experience of this life state. And where that brought our thinking was that, you know, if it's a reproducible life state, not just sort of among people we know, but throughout all of human history and recorded history, there has to be neurologic correlates in the brain. There's no such thing as any experience that, that doesn't, that occurs outside of that. You know, Ash and I are both, you know, fundamentally scientists and so we're very interested in the neurology of that. And so as we got into that and started looking at some of the studies around this and put together a lot of these studies to sort of synthesize our thinking about this, the thesis we came up with really relates to a lot of some recent work that's been done around the use of psychedelics, specifically psilocybin, which there's been a rebirth and in interest in the research field about what the effects of psilocybin are. And what caught my attention originally about this was there's a, a cohort of people who have terminal illnesses, usually terminal cancer, who, as you imagine, as you could imagine, are paralyzed with fear and anxiety as they're facing their, their end. And so uh, some scientists actually decided to try in a controlled setting the use of psilocybin to see if that would have a beneficial effect on the anxiety of these patients. And what they found was it had a dramatic effect. And in fact, it was a sustained dramatic effect in reducing levels of anxiety and depression and increasing joy. And when they studied in functional MRI scanners what was going on in the brains of people who were given the psilocybin, what they found was consistent parts of the brain were being downregulated. And as that was happening, other parts of the brain that aren't normally speaking to each other began cross-talking. Part of the brain that is downregulated with not just psilocybin but other uh, psychedelics is something called the default mode network. What we know from other research is that the default mode network is the part of the brain that is most active when people are focused on basically themselves and how the world is relating to themselves. It's, it's self-referential. And what's fascinating about this is that when people also meditate and are looking to, as they say, pierce the veil of the illusion of the self, in some sense, recognize that their sense of self or their, the sense of permanency of their sense of self is an illusion, that is also the part of the brain that is downregulated, and which was fascinating, right? And so the other parts of the brain that begin crosstalking are, are parts that, at least one of them, which is the uh, insula, which is a part of the brain that has many functions, but one of them seems to be related to a feeling of joy. So we synthesized that. We synthesized a bunch of other research to suggest that it really is this constant chattering of the sense of self, specifically the autobiographical self that correlates to the default mode network, the neurologic correlate, that when that is silenced and other parts of the brain begin talking to one another because they're now dysregulated, they're not being regulated by the default mode network, it's just sort of like the conductor, if you will, of, of other brain processes. That's when this state 
seems to arise where people feel, among other things, this this noetic sense of that some greater truth has been reached. They can't put it into words, but they have that feeling that they're perceiving this greater truth. They have a sense of oneness with not just their immediate environment, but all of the universe and all of people, this overwhelming sense of love and this joy and this fearlessness in the face of death has all been described. And it correlates remarkably well to very specific changes we see in functional MRIs in the brain. But there have been people who have described achieving this state and sort of losing their sense of self without psilocybin, right? Meditators have described this. And in fact, the thesis that we've come up with is that it really is the chattering autobiographical self that in some way is suppressing this particular life state. And that if you could in, in some way downregulate that sense of self uh, on a regular basis, you might be able to achieve this brain state which corresponds to a psychological state that is really what we, we would call a state of absolute happiness. You're not delusional. You're not overwhelmed with, uh, like, nar- nar- narcotized, like with a narcotic where you're just sort of giddy. But you are your most joyous, wisest, most compassionate self and see things and value things in their most proper portion. And so it seems to be related to the ability to surrender one's sense of self. People have described this that it is this renunciation of the sense of self in a particular way. And if I could describe the exact steps to take to do that, I would be much wealthier than I am because uh, we just don't have the science yet to definitively say, how can everyone achieve this state? You know, here's, here's, but it really seems to involve um, surrendering the sense of self. And the thing that the science suggests maybe the, the way into this, the best way into this is actually by inducing a feeling of awe. And there's a lot of science around this. When people are able to induce a sense of awe, their sense of self dramatically shrinks. Now, it's not that they sort of feel they're small and insignificant in in a negative way, but their connection to this chattering sense of self kind of quiets down dramatically. This has been described in people who've been in nature. This has been described by astronauts who've been traveling to and from the moon and sort of having this perspective this cosmic perspective thrust in their faces and have described this incredible uh, quieting of the sense of self. So our thesis, our ultimate thesis is that this is something everyone can pursue by, by seeking to be awed at every moment by our surroundings, by actually really paying attention to our surroundings in a way we don't normally do, by not taking our surroundings for granted, but looking at them in a particular way and perceiving the, the sublime beauty of our surroundings. We can induce awe we can then uh, quiet the sense of self and manifest this, this life condition of enlightenment where we feel like our, our most joyous selves. And as you can imagine, if you can practice this and do this, sort of the way an actor might practice on command, making themselves sad, it really seems to be something that should be within our grasp with a little bit of training. We can achieve this perspective that cannot be taken from us. The joy we feel cannot be removed by any loss. And we don't become impervious to pain in this lose things we care about in the state, we still feel that pain of that loss, but we don't suffer because of it. That's the idea, is that it is a way to fundamentally challenge our, our, our vulnerability to suffering and to, to develop lives and achieve you know, a life state and a, a life that, that comes from that life state. That really is, we think, should be the ultimate goal of everybody. I really like this perspective that enlightenment is, from a physical perspective, the scientific state of the brain that correlates with these historical descriptions and, and records of what enlightenment is, is something that's not hidden away in monasteries for Buddhist monks who are meditating for 30 years. It's something that can be achieved by anyone, anywhere, really at any time. 
I, I think it can. I mean, we don't, and I, I want to be really strict with what we're saying here. We don't have proof of that. We don't have proof that everyone is equally capable of doing this, but we have enough proof that people throughout history have done that it seems like an achievable state. I should also point out that that people have meditated, you know, meditation has really penetrated the West, have meditated for three decades and never come close to this. It's not a guarantee of this. But the fact that every single person who's been given an adequate dose of psilocybin has described this state tells you that our brains are capable of experiencing it. And so the question is, is there some other way, some practice that isn't a, a shortcut that doesn't leave us sort of hallucinating as psilocybin can do, but leaves us functional and able to sort of enjoy the state in, in a way. And so, you know, our thesis is if it's something that is intrinsic to the, the neurology of our brain, some way to bring that state out with a drug, it's reasonable to believe that there's a practice that could do it as well. And, and evidence that other people have done it without the drug, uh, I think only bolsters that hypothesis. One of the other things, and I'm not sure if you came across this in your research, that I've encountered and seen research around shutting down or downcycling the default mode network is being in a flow state, a really, really intense flow state. Did you come across at all or see that in uh, any of the work that you did? We did. Yeah, we write about that, actually. Flow gets you very close there. And I think anyone who has experienced it, there is an incredible of joy and, and uh, uh, lost a sense of time in the flow state. But, you know, I can only speak from my personal experience. It's not the same thing. And I don't know if that's because when you're in a flow state, your default network is so downregulated, you're not sort of consciously aware enough to recognize you're in such a, a joy state in the way that you are because it doesn't also activate brain structures lower down in the brain that may be responsible for that transcendent joy that you get. But having experienced both the world of enlightenment and a flow state, I can attest that they're different, similar but different. So I think that aiming towards flow is a very uh, valuable and laudable goal, but I, I don't know that it's necessarily going to get you to the state of enlightenment we're talking about. But honestly, I don't know. I, I'd love to see a study that sort of looked at that. You know, one of the things that came to mind for me when I was researching this and, and trying to understand how to create awe in my life was Cosmos by Carl Sagan, the old school TV series, and even or his book, Pale Blue Dot, and that famous speech. I mean, those are some things that that I think I've had moments in my life where I've experienced this moment of awe and the realization of how expansive and massive the universe is and how inconsequential we are in the grand scale of time and space in the cosmos. And tell me something, Matt, how joyous an experience was that for you? It's an awesome experience. Yeah. No, I mean, it is. And I think, I mean, I think that the task before us, and when we talk about something pragmatic that listeners can take away is, you know, how can we reach for that state in our everyday lives, right? We're not all sitting on the beach looking at the most beautiful sunset in the world or in front of the Grand Canyon or in a, in a, in a space capsule, you know, uh, looking at Earth from the moon. But I will tell you, since I've written this book uh, and I've begun practicing looking for awe in everyday things, what I've discovered is that it's everywhere. It's, it really is there for us to see. It's, it's, it's a matter of pausing to try to actually see it. And practicing it, like anything I'm finding, makes it easier. And you sort of learn the mental pathway to travel to get to there, get there faster. So, you know, studies have shown, and we quote some of this work in, in the book, that there are very particular things that induce uh, nature being one of them. Because it's, it's a, part of what it means to be sublime is that it's so large, our mind can't quite take it in all at once. And that's a great way for stimulating the sense of awe and bringing out this life state. But I would contend it can be found in everyday things that surround us all the time. We just have to look for it. Yeah, in terms of 
Uh, we talked about some practical things. I think there's a couple I'd like to add that don't necessarily have to be even in the pursuit of, of the state of enlightenment, uh, but in, just in general to try to battle or bring into awareness some of these these core delusions so that these beliefs don't grip you so much and you can start getting some control over them and subsequently the control over the happiness in your life. And, you know, one thing I, it was interesting, Alex and I, we do we have this this little survey we, people can, that tells us what world we believe they come from. And it's been interesting to watch people take it and sort of lights come on for them as they start thinking about those beliefs and bring and how it's thrust into their awareness and then how they start and being more in the moment, understanding how it's governing some of their decisions and some of their beliefs they have. And just in that act of sort of bringing that into your awareness and being able to evaluate it and, and assess it and interrogate it in yourself as you go through day-to-day life and notice that your your life conditions sort of go up and down and then trying to connect that to why that might be the case is actually very empowering and liberating. And so I think just you know taking the time to maybe understand world tends to have you most in its grip what belief you really cling to that makes you happy and examining that and just trying to bring that into your awareness as you find your mood sort of fluctuating and, and then force yourself to kind of ask one or two questions about why that's the case. Is this one one simple thing you can do to try to understand what beliefs kind of hold you in their grip? So you may have already or just answered this question, but what would be one specific action step or piece of homework that you would give the listeners who, who've been listening to this whole conversation who want to concretely begin down this path? Well, I think Ash put his finger on a, a thing that's easier to do than what I was describing, which is to become mindful of the degree to which these core delusions actually determine how happy you are. And by pausing and when you're the way you have a trigger that's that a belief about happiness has been activated is if your mood shifts, if you go from being happy to being depressed or angry or some other emotion comes out, to ask yourself, okay, what's happened? And then what particular belief, what core delusion has this event stirred up in me to actually see to to look at that itself? It's surprisingly powerful how much control over that belief going through that exercise, becoming mindful of it gives you, where you suddenly realize, oh, it's really true. The reason I'm scared right now that I lost my job is because I really believe to be happy, I have to avoid pain. And, and recognizing that, it actually sort of tempers the response to it. And in fact, in some sense, it can almost free you from the grip of that belief itself and realize, well, I don't have to be afraid of pain. I, I'm strong enough I can handle pain. So the fact I've lost my job, all that it means is I may have to go through some pain. But if I'm okay with that, then maybe this isn't the worst thing in the world. And maybe, in fact, I don't have to be not just not happy, but even depressed about this. And so I don't mean to make light of how uh, profound certain losses can be and have an effect on us. And, and certainly wouldn't say if you're uh, dysfunctional in some way, you shouldn't go get professional help. But recognizing what's going on in your belief system and in your mind psychologically when you react to things is a surprisingly powerful way to get control of them. And so I think there's a practical way to just watch yourself and, and, you know, looking at the book, you know, this list of core delusions, they're very, very basic. And if you can ask yourself, so we've provided readers with or listeners with what we think are the core delusions, ask them, they can ask themselves, which of these is being stirred up for me right now? Because what we've, we've challenged people, readers and, and acquaintances of ours to do this, they can usually figure it out. And in figuring that out, it really is often a profound moment of insight for them. Great piece of advice. And so Ash, Alex, where can listeners find you? You mentioned a survey. Where can they find these resources and the book online? So the survey they can find, or that's what we call it, on our, our website called the10worlds.com. And you can go there and it's a quick, you know, five-minute assessment and it will tell you which world we believe you come from, or at least yours your strongest tendency, and a, a quick description of what that world is. 
And then in the book, you can get any place, you know, Amazon or Barnes and Nobles or any place you can, you know, find local bookstore that you can find the book. It's available. And so, the, and then, you know, great if you can connect the dots to, to, you know, walk around like, hey, I would, I would encourage people to walk around with the delusions of belief sort of written out. And as you find your mood fluctuating, if there's something on there that you feel like, you know, belief that you think, that you think is, is uh, being stirred up and then I mean, that's just a very simple, practical thing to do. Awesome. Well, Ash, Alex, thank you both so much for coming on the show, for sharing all of this knowledge and this wisdom, a fascinating conversation, so many interesting ideas. And I really love the approach that you both took to solving this challenge. Great to be on. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thank you very much, Matt. Uh, Loved it. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or If you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. Success.